Welcome back. When she was six years old, Ruby Bridges and her mother had to walk past crowds of screaming, angry white people who did not want a black kid like her to go to an all-white school. For a whole year, she had guards, U.S. Marshals, to protect her just so she could go to school. Her bravery 60 years ago made Ruby Bridges one of the youngest heroes of the civil rights era, and she's been working for racial equity ever since. Ruby Bridges is here with us today to talk about what it was like to integrate her elementary school, and we'll hear about her new book, This Is Your Time, which is about how kids today can be civil rights heroes, too. We also welcome the students of Alice Deal Middle School, our school of the week. We know they'll have questions for Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's indeed an honor. The honor is all ours. We're eager to talk about how you became the first black kid ever to attend your elementary school. But first, let's learn a little about you as a kid. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Well, I was actually born in a tiny town called Tylertown, Mississippi. And um, my parents, um, both father and mother, were from there, sharecroppers. We um, left... Mississippi when I was about four years old and moved to New Orleans, which is where I grew up. Did you have siblings? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, I am the oldest of eight. Um, at the time that I integrated school, there were only probably, I think, about five of us. But I am uh, the oldest. What were you like when you were a kid? What did you like to do? Did you have any favorite toys, any favorite books? My favorite books actually came to me um, as a result of integrating school. You know, we, uh, my parents were consumed with where the next meal was going to come from. So I didn't really grow up in a house with books. But um, after I integrated school, I started to receive um, all sorts of gifts from all across the country. And um, one of those uh, special gifts were... Dr. Seuss books that I would get in the mail, and I so looked forward to them. Uh, I also had a Raggedy Ann doll, uh, which was the thing for little girls at the time. Oh, yeah. So, um, yes. Well, your father died a while ago, and your mother died just a few months ago. Sincere condolences for your loss. Um, Thank you. Your parents are very important in everything we're going to talk about today before we go to the phone, since it was their decision to allow you to integrate your elementary school. What do you want us to know about your parents? Uh, well, my parents were not activists. As I said, that they were uh, sharecroppers. Both of them grew up on farms, and um, neither one of them had a formal education. Um, that was an, a luxury for them. If it was time for them to get the crops in, they were not allowed to go to school. And I think that that had a huge impact on their decision to allow me to integrate um, one of the first schools in uh, Louisiana, in New Orleans at the time. I think that they indeed wanted something for me, opportunities that they did not have for themselves. Let's talk about when you were little, a time when black people and others worked to change the laws so everyone would have the same rights. In 1954, the Supreme Court, the most important court in the country, ruled that separating kids by race in public schools 
um, having schools just for white kids where black students were not allowed was against the law. But what a lot of young people today might not understand is that six years after that ruling, when you were going into first grade, the elementary school near your house was still all white. Why was that, even though the court had said it shouldn't be that way? Well, we know that that landmark case happened in 1954, which is actually the year that I was born. But um, I was often told that there was a loophole that said that they needed to implement it with all deliberate speed. And that was the loophole. That um, that meant that uh, people had a choice as to when they wanted to implement the law. And it had not happened for six years in Louisiana. So um, I was accustomed to going to school. I'd gone to an all-black school that was further away from my home for kindergarten and a month or so of first grade. Even though school started in September, uh, this particular uh, law was not implemented until November the 14th, which uh, meant that I had to actually switch schools from the all-black school, which was further away from my home, and attend my neighborhood school, which was very close to my house, but it was an all-white school. So it was your parents' decision to send you there, William Franz Elementary School. As you mentioned, it was all-white. Why did they want you to go there? What was the difference between that school and the schools that black students attended? Well, for my parents, what they heard is that By sending me, it would allow me an opportunity to possibly have a better education and um, the right to choose my own school. That um, they also heard that it would uh, allow me an opportunity to go to college. And again, coming from where they came from and their background, that was just unheard of for them. So they wanted those opportunities and those rights for their own children. Your mother was, I think, a little more enthusiastic than your father was. It took a while for your father to agree. Can you tell us why he wasn't so sure that he wanted you to go there? My father uh, fought in the Korean War. And um, I remember he would always say that he remembered being on the front line when it was his turn to go onto the front line. And you could be fighting for the same country right next to a white soldier. You could be in a foxhole with a white soldier. But at the end of the day, if you were lucky enough to live, you could not go back to the same barracks. And you couldn't eat in the same mess hall as a white soldier. And so he felt like if going through all that did not change things, than subjecting his child to uh, what I was subjected to wouldn't change things. And unfortunately, my father passed away when I was 21. He was only 46. And so he never really had an opportunity to see um, the fruits of their labor. And it is my understanding that after you started going to that school, your father got fired from his job. Yes, my father uh, was a service station attendant. And once his uh, boss found out that it was his daughter attending this white school, 
most of their customers started to complain, and uh, which resulted in my father's boss firing him. Allow me to go to the phones because there are a lot of kids, many of them from Alice Deal Middle School, awaiting us. Let's start with eight-year-old Sloan, who's from Colin Powell Elementary School in Centerville, Virginia. Sloan, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello. Um, my question um, is, what did it feel like to be, a, to be alone in the classroom? Well, hi, Sloan. It's a pleasure to be able to talk with you. That's a question that I get all the time. And I think the quickest way to sum it up is that I was really lonely. I had a great teacher, but I didn't have anyone my own age to befriend or play with. And so that made school really lonely for me. Thank you very much for your call, Sloan. Now, here is 12-year-old Max, who's a student at Alice Deal in Washington. Max, it's your turn. Go ahead, please. Hi, I'm Max, and my question is, how were the other teachers during your other grades? Hi, Max. Well, my teachers um, that taught me in uh, the other grades, starting with second grade, There were lots of teachers who actually quit their jobs. They didn't want to teach black kids. And by the time I got into second grade, I was being taught by one of those teachers who had refused to teach me the year before. She was definitely not as nice to me as my first grade teacher. But pretty much, um, I have to say that um, it was a different experience because at that point, I was with uh, a full classroom of kids And that made things a little bit easier for me as well. Well, talk, go back to talk about uh, your first grade teacher. Can you remember what it was like getting ready to go to school that very first day? What did your parents tell you to expect? And what do you think of those U.S. Marshals, essentially law enforcement people who were sent to protect you? Well, the truth is, is that, um, you know, it would be really, really hard for parents to explain to a six-year-old what I was about to venture into. I mean, you have to think about it. What would you say? How would you prepare your child? You know, would you say there are going to be lots of people outside? It's really a mob, and they're there to keep you out. They don't like you, and they're throwing things, and, you know, um, they really don't want you there, but I'll be with you, and you'll have a great day. I mean, there's absolutely no way to explain that to your six-year-old without making it worse. And I do believe that my parents felt that way, so they never tried to explain anything to me. Uh, the only thing that I was told to prepare me for that experience is, Ruby, you're going to go to a new school today, and you'd better behave. And that was the extent of it. Um, in hindsight, I think... Uh, that what protected me that year was the innocence of a child, not really knowing what was going on around me. Tell us about your first grade teacher. How did you get a first grade teacher? My first grade teacher actually came from Boston to teach me. Her husband was also in the military and stationed right outside of New Orleans. Uh, she was um, looking for a teacher's position and volunteered to teach me. Um, I think that she was accustomed to teaching on military uh, bases, 
uh, diverse groups of kids. And so it really didn't matter to her what I looked like. She was an amazing teacher, um, made school fun. Uh, I loved school because of her. We became best friends, and um, I do believe she was put there for me. And her name? Her name was Barbara Henry. Here now is 13-year-old Madison from Alice Deal. Madison, your turn. Hi. Um, do you remember if you were scared when you were walking into the um, school building? Hi, Madison. Um, what I remember about being frightened was there were days when people in the mob would bring a small baby's coffin it was a real baby's coffin, and they would put this black doll inside. And um, whenever I would have to pass the coffin, because they would march around the school carrying it, I remember that that frightened me the most, that I would have nightmares about that at night. So that is the one thing that stuck out in my mind and that I was always, always really afraid of. Madison, thank you very much for your call. Here now is 11-year-old Annalise, who is at Taylor Middle School in Warrington, Virginia. Annalise, it's your turn. Go ahead, please. Hi, Annalise. Are you there? Annalise is slowly coming to the phone. There we are. Hi. I would like to ask two questions, if that's okay. Go right ahead. Once other children started coming to school, did you start to make any friends at that point? Hi, Annalise. Uh, to answer your question, I did not make friends until near the end of the year. Uh, there were only a handful of kids that actually uh, crossed that picket line um, and uh, entered into uh, William France Elementary. The principal, who was part of the opposition, she decided to take those kids and hide them so that they would never see me and I would not see them. Uh, there were times near the end of the year when I could hear them. I never saw them, but I could hear them. And I was constantly um, bringing that to the attention of Mrs. Henry. What I didn't know at the time and later uh, came to realize that uh, she was going to the principal and... Um, complaining, saying that you, the law has changed and you are hiding kids from Ruby, that um, if you don't allow them to come together, I'm going to report you to the superintendent. So that uh, forced them to allow Mrs. Henry to take me to where they were. Um, and that only happened on a couple of occasions. Thank you very much for your call, Annalise. Here now is 12-year-old Max at Alice Deal. Max, your turn. Hi. My question is, um, where did you go for kindergarten? Ruby Bidges, did you hear that question? Max wanted to know where Ruby Bridges went for kindergarten. I think that for the time being, we have lost Ruby Bridges, so we will try to reach her, presumably by phone, but I'll take a note. Hello. The, there you are. 12-year-old Max wanted to know where did you go for kindergarten. For kindergarten, I went to an all-black school. It was called Johnson Lockett 
Elementary, which was uh, much further away from my home. Thank you very much for your call, Max. Ruby Bridges, I think this is a good time to hear from your new book for kids in which you tell your story. It's called This Is Your Time. I think I've personally read it four times, but <laughs> would you <laughs> but would, would you read a bit of it for us, please? Definitely. Uh, Sixty years ago, in 1960, my life changed forever. Although I was not aware of it, our nation was changing too. What I remember about that time, through my six-year-old eyes, is that there, were, there was lots of extreme unrest, much like we see today. I was chosen to be the first child to go to an all-white school, William Fryans Elementary, in my hometown of New Orleans. I did not yet know that I had stepped into the history books. For my whole first year, I had to be escorted to and from my school by four federal marshals under order of the President of the United States because people were afraid for my safety. Going into and coming out of school every day, I walked through crowds of people yelling, screaming threats, throwing things at six-year-old me. They were against the integration of black and white children in the same schools. I had been so excited to meet and make new friends at school and was met with something utterly different and terrifying. It was a difficult decision for both of my parents to agree to let me go to school along with the marshals, especially for my dad. But they knew it was necessary. My father, like most dads, wanted nothing more than to protect his little girl. But as a young black man, it was not safe for him to walk me to school every day. My father loved me more than I would ever know, and I felt that he was my very own hero. He was also a hero, a real hero, having received a Purple Heart for bravery while serving overseas in the Korean War. But he did not return to a hero's welcome. There was little work given to young black men back then. When I arrived at this all-white school that first day, all of the white parents rushed in and pulled out their kids. They didn't want their children going to school with me. But why? I didn't understand. They had never met or even seen me before now. So how could they know what kind of person I was? But none of that mattered. I don't think they even saw a child. All they saw was the color of my skin. I was black, and that meant I didn't matter. Ruby Bridges, reading from her latest book, it is called um, This Is Our Time. Ruby Bridges, you wrote your book in the form of a letter to the young peacemakers of America. Who are they, and why did you write this book for them? Well, you know, after I saw the murder of George Floyd, I, all I could think about is what my babies, my young people were actually thinking, watching that themselves. And for the past 25 years, I'd gone into schools all across the country uh, explaining to kids how I felt like uh, racism had no place in their minds and in their hearts and that they needed to be united and um, I felt like I needed to be able to address them in some way. Um, but being 
on lockdown, like all of us, because of the virus. I wasn't able to do that. And some very dear friends of mine, after consulting with them, we felt like the best approach would be to um, write a letter to them. And so I wanted to do that, to explain to them what I saw, what I was seeing, reminded me so much of what I saw and was a part of uh, during the Civil Rights Movement in 1960. It looked very much the same. I wanted to assure them that just as we had to go through the Civil Rights Movement to get to where we are today, unfortunately that we have to go through uh, sort of the same behavior to um, move this country forward in the direction that uh, so many of us are hoping that it will soon be, uh, and to uh, help them to understand that they too had a responsibility uh, to carry the torch and to make sure that um, they do their part of uh, protesting and uh, helping this country to live up to its name, uh, the United States of America. So that's what this book is about. That's what my letter um, was about. Uh, address to peacemakers, because I hope uh, that that's what they will become. I'm really glad you mentioned that they are going to school during a pandemic because 11-year-old Luke from Alice Deal, who has a twin sister, by the way, no, with his sister, Lena, uh, both have a question for you related to that. Luke, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you so much, Mr. Namdi, for taking our call. Ms. Bridges, it's an honor to speak with you. A question for you is, we are both in virtual school because of the pandemic, and we are doing well, but we know that some kids are having trouble. With all of your experience of overcoming challenges at a very young age, what is your advice to those students? Well, um, first I'd like to say that uh, it's an honor to speak with you. I can tell that you are an excellent reader, which is great. Uh, my advice is to remain hopeful that, um, you know, Sometimes we have to go through struggle uh, to get to a better place. That's what I was doing at six years old. It was quite a struggle to be there um, in that classroom alone every day, walking through that mob. But ultimately, it helped us as young people uh, to um, have the right to choose our own schools and to have the opportunity to go to school with uh, kids that look different. So ultimately, that walk actually changed the face of education for all of us. And so um, I would say remain hopeful that we are going to get to a better place in time. And thank you very much for your call, both Luke and Lena. I'm afraid that's about all the time we have. Ruby Bidges, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I so appreciate the opportunity to speak. It's always um, near and dear to my heart to be able to connect and talk with young people, and especially uh, during a time like this when we're all on lockdown due to this virus. But I do know that we are going to be together sometime very soon in the near future. So I appreciate the invitation. 
Ruby Bridges is a civil rights activist and author. Her latest book is called This Is Your Time. Today's segment on President's Day was produced by Ines Renike and our Kojo for Kids with Ruby Bridges was produced by Lauren Marco. Coming up tomorrow, eight-year-old Relisha Rudd disappeared from a D.C. homeless shelter in 2014. Seven years later, Relisha is still missing. In the first season of WMU's new podcast, Through the Cracks, host Jonquilin Hill investigates. And please join me tomorrow evening at 7.30 for our next Kojo in your community. We'll discuss how local leaders are tackling racism across our institutions. It's virtual and it's free. Go to wamu.org to register. Thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Nandi. The Kojo Nandi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sydney Granin, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Ines Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schrobstorff. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the donate button and thanks.